Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you didn't have anything better to do. Right. Or if you had nothing better to do. Right. I can't remember. Whatever. Same difference. Yeah. So, hmm. how was your week? Did you celebrate Easter? Are you talking to me? Who else would I be talking to? You know, damn to? well I didn't celebrate Easter. I had a bunch of candy. I've eaten Easter candy since it's been in the store, but that's about... Yeah, I spent, today is Easter, Sunday, for the celebrating Christians of the world. Today, I spent today working, doing different stuff, things. Me too. I was writing my script. Mm. Do you have an update for us? I do. Yeah, a quick one. Yay! Yeah. Okay. I thought I had some other ones, but I can't remember, and the place I usually save links for updates, I, I couldn't find them, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But anyway. Okay. Jelaine Maxwell. Episode 78, and a couple others after that, who has been in jail since July 2020 on two charges of perjury, was charged March 29th with sex trafficking. And as you know, Maxwell was a longtime associate, you might say partner of some sort, to Jeffrey Epstein. And federal prosecutors in the charge, the sex trafficking charge, say she groomed a 14-year-old girl to engage in what the press keeps saying sexual acts with Epstein, but I'm going to say... Since it's an underage girl, let's call it what it is, which is sexual assault by Epstein, not sexual acts. And after the girl was assaulted, Maxwell paid her hundreds of dollars. And this allegedly happened multiple times between 2001 and 2004. And I just want to bring up, too, because I've heard it in... In, like, podcasts about the Epstein thing. Or is it Epstein? Why can't I say his name right? People say it both ways. Yeah. And also, like, one, a similar one about Peter Nygaard, the Canadian clothes designer and stuff. I think there's some confusion around why these guys pay the girls. Frankly, I think the main reason they do it is because later they can say, hey, she took money for it. So, obviously... You know, it was a consensual act and she got something out of it. Yes, and their twisted mind, that makes it okay. I, I think that, I'm not even saying they think it makes it okay. I, I think they're covering their asses in case but, somebody, I think it makes people, especially young girls, from thinking that they have a yes. right to complain. So I think it's a manipulative act that isn't discussed enough. But since Maxwell has been in jail, she's been denied three bail and 12 pretrial release motions. Her legal team says her jail stay is affecting her health and her ability to prepare for trial. And I'd say it probably is, just like all the other hundreds of thousands of Americans who are in jail awaiting bail and haven't been convicted of anything. And for people who aren't clear, prison is where you go after you're convicted. Jail is where you go if you're convicted of a lesser charge, usually a misdemeanor or something that's less than a year. But it's also the holding place where people who are awaiting trial and other things stay. People get jail and prison mixed up, but that's a distinction, Mm -hmm. at least in the U.S. But according to the Prison Policy Initiative, about 470,000 people in the U.S. at any one time who haven't been convicted of a crime are locked up in jail, many because they can't afford bail, which averages about 10 grand. It's why some people cop to plea deals even though they're innocent, as we mentioned when we were talking about the documentary How to Fix a Drug Scandal a while back. Anyway, a motion filed last week by Maxwell's lawyers once again asks that she be let out and takes the complaints about the effect on her health and her inability to prepare for trial a little farther and says it's also sexist. Because a bunch of wealthy men, all of them but one white, of course, who faced 
sex, or other non-murder charges were released on bail, including Bernie Madoff, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Dominique mm. Strauss-Kahn, and lots of others. The filing says, The truth is that wealthy men charged with similar or more serious offenses, many of whom have foreign ties, are routinely granted bail so that they can effectively prepare for trial. Ms. Maxwell is entitled to the same opportunity as male defendants to prepare her defense. And yes, they do have a point. I'll agree with that. Or maybe they can start making the sleazebag guys stay in jail too. And anyway, that's where things stand. It's my update. Okay, so I have an update too. Oh, goody. I believe it was episode 29. (laughs) Annie Dukin, Wicked Bad Chemistry. Oh, yeah, an update on that. Wow, great. Well, this might be one of the last ones. And if if you haven't, I can't even tell you. If you haven't listened to episode 29, you can listen to it. There are many, many updates to this uh, episode because it was a shit show. Annie Dukin was a chemist in the Hinton Lab in Boston who falsified a bunch of drug tests for trials so people got convicted that probably shouldn't have so that's the very simplified version of the story and that was way back in 2012 i believe um when they shut the lab down so the most recent thing just happened a couple weeks ago district attorney rachel rollins who is the district attorney of suffolk county which is the boston area has pledged to vacate any convictions any drug convictions where either sonia farak who was the other bad chemist or annie dukin tested the results it's like seventy-three thousand cases the people have to apply to get their conviction vacated i think it's just such a mess that's all they can do a lot of these people have already served time They've paid fines. So I think if your conviction's vacated and you've paid a fine and you've paid court costs, they're due that money back. So it's going to cost millions. I don't even know how many millions mm. of dollars to the state. What a mess. So that's my update. I can't really deal with it anymore. I, it, I, I don't think we have to. I don't think we have Pandora's to box yeah. open once they found out. Like we've talked about before, though, it makes you wonder, can you trust anything in that lab? Like, Mm. who else was doing shit? No kidding. Yeah, Jesus. Anyway, so that's my update. Okay. Do you have a main mini? I do have a main mini. And Okay, so my story is also main related, so we can play the song once. I'll play it now. Okay. As usual, that song came from the state government website, Maine.gov. And I apologize to anybody that hates that song, but we can't help it. You know, there are plenty of podcasts that have plenty of shitty music that go on a hell of a lot longer than that song does. Okay. For instance, you know how much I love Laura Richards, but her podcast, Crime Analyst, which I like, the electro-funk or whatever Ugh. theme song has this sound every few seconds that sounds like dad belching. <laughs> you okay. know? Yeah. So if people don't like... Do, why, do you have an issue? We've never really talked about this. Do you have an issue with me playing the main... No, I don't have an issue with it. Okay. I just worry that some people might not like it. I don't know well, why. I'm too much of a people pleaser, my therapist you, says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
right. Well, you know what? There's plenty of other things for them not to like about this podcast. If they're going to stop listening because I'm playing a song for 10 seconds, then they're not listening for a lot of other well, reasons, like too. like their theme song. I mean, we don't really have a great theme song, but it's because Cause it was we free. didn't have anything. And we just made that. Because it was spot. free and we got it off. Uh, <laughs> anyway. It's actually okay, two, so two, sound, two songs put Two sounds a piece put together. <laughs> so what's your main mini about? Okay, why don't I just get right into it? Rhonda Patalina, like many people from Massachusetts, loved to visit York Beach in Maine. At the southernmost tip of Maine, close to New Hampshire, Massachusetts, York Beach is a pretty seaside village, part of the town of York, which has a couple pretty seaside villages in it, and it gets a lot of visitors from out of state because, and I'm not saying this is true of her, but for a lot of the visitors, they can come to Maine, enjoy Maine, but not really have to go far into Maine and truly experience Maine. But that's not what this mini's about. Patalina, 35, was the mother of three boys and also had something in her life that wasn't as pretty as York Beach. Her relationship with her boyfriend, Jeffrey Buchanan. Buchanan had pleaded guilty to kidnapping Patalina and two of her sons in 2017 and was sentenced to two years in prison, according to the Boston Globe. The two, since then, since he got out of prison in 2018, have been on again, off again. He's the father of her two-year-old son, her other two boys are 17 and 14. Patalina was afraid enough of Buchanan that she had a code word with her friend Melissa Matranga, Ostrich, that she told Matranga she would text if she were ever in trouble and needed help with Buchanan. On Friday, March 26, Matranga never got a text with that word from Patalina. Things likely happened too fast. Patalina and Buchanan were visiting York Beach for the day when, according to multiple witnesses and surveillance cameras for businesses, at about 4 p.m., he began beating her on Short Sands Beach. The surveillance videos appear to show him striking her while her back is turned to him, followed by several more strikes, and that's according to several news outlets, and also witnesses who saw him hit her, then drag her behind a rock, where he continued to beat her, possibly with rock. Then he walked away. Buchanan walked from the beach into a beachfront neighborhood heading toward the Funorama Arcade on Beach Street and then onto Railroad Avenue, the center of the town's business community. A witness pointed Buchanan out to an officer and he was taken into custody. Buchanan was without incident. Patalina was dead when police arrived on the scene after getting many 911 calls, several from people who saw at least part of the attack. It was found the next day she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, according to her autopsy. Buchanan was charged with murder. According to an affidavit from Maine State Police Detective David Kofleski and filed in York County Superior Court March 29th in support of the murder charge and quoted by many newspapers, but linked by none. And some of the passages quoted in some news outlets, <laughs> including the stuff that isn't in quotes, mysteriously is word for word the same, which makes me think hmm. that I think Seacoast Online, which is the Portsmouth, New Hampshire Herald, mm -hmm. and the Portland Press Herald from Maine both got the affidavit, and I think everybody else was just poaching from their stories. That's my... But nobody linked it, unfortunately. Hmm. But anyway, York Police Department patrolman Brian McNeese took Buchanan into custody, and after Buchanan was read his rights by police detective... Chris Goslin at the police station, according to the police. Buchanan told them that before the attack, he had seen a man running toward them at the beach, and he saw Panelina making hand gestures behind hmm. him. He felt 
threatened, then, quote, blacked out, and remembers breathing heavily and seeing Panelina lying on the ground, then he walked away. He wouldn't say anything else about it, according to the affidavit, as reported by Seacoast Online and the Press Herald. Now, I'm just going to quote from the affidavit for a second, as quoted in the Press Herald unnecessarily, because (laughs) it's some of the worst kind of cop speak, and it drives me crazy. But here's a quote from the affidavit. When asked if he remembered anything, he advised that he first recalled breathing heavily and that Rhonda was laying on the ground. He advised that he walked away at that point, leaving Rhonda behind. And I just want to say I fucking hate it. When the police say advised instead of said or told. There is no fucking reason (laughs) to use that word. I know. And I hate it even more when newspapers fucking use it and quote them because it's it's just a stupid use of that word and it drives me fucking crazy. And another thing and another thing more relevant to the story, you'll see all the time that men who kill their female partners say they just blacked out and it happened. Mm -hmm. I think Chris Watts said that. He strangled her and, you know, it takes like four or five minutes to strangle a person. Numerous domestic violence experts say this is not a thing. The guy knows what he's doing, especially in a sustained attack like strangling someone or hitting them repeatedly with a rock until they're dead. You're not like normal and functioning one second. You black out and kill someone and then you're normal and functioning again. I recently, and I'm sorry, I can't remember either heard this discussed on Laura Richards podcast, crime analyst, or in a book I'm reading, Jess Hill's See What You Made Me Do, both of which are good and address this topic. Anyway, officers from the York and Elliott Police Departments, Elliott, Maine is a town near York, said they found a significant amount of blood on the sand around Rhonda's body. They also found a rock that officers say may have been used to cause the trauma to her head and face, according to the affidavit. Besides the kidnapping conviction that he served time for in 2017 and 18, Buchanan has convictions in Massachusetts dating to 2013 for carrying a dangerous weapon, larceny, and possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, although if that last one was tested by Sonia Farak or Annie Dukin, it could be, um, maybe it was just a bag of sugar from his coffee at the diner or something. (laughs) He was arraigned in New York County Superior Court March 30th, where Justice Wayne Douglas ordered him to undergo a mental health evaluation, which had been requested by his lawyer, John Gale. He was ordered held without bail and is scheduled to return to court on April 12th, so around the time this episode drops. In the 2017 kidnapping incident with Patalina, a Massachusetts state trooper had encountered a distraught woman at Logan Airport in Boston, which was her, and she said her boyfriend had assaulted her and prevented her and her children from leaving their house for a long period of time, then then demanded to be driven to the airport. And this was reported by the Press Herald, who got it from, I think, the Suffolk County District Attorney. His probation conditions after he was released in 2018 included mental health and substance use evaluations, as well as any treatment deemed necessary. Patalina worked as a medical assistant and was studying to become a licensed practical nurse. Dozens of friends and supporters held a candlelight vigil on Friday, April 2nd at the Ellis Park Pavilion at Short Sands Beach for Patalina. They couldn't hold on the beach because it was high tide. After several other people, seemingly mostly all women, 
as these things are, and I've mentioned many times before, you know, these vigils tend to be women talking about this issue and not men. But after several people spoke, her sister thanked everyone for their love and support and said, my sister was and is the most beautiful soul that could have walked this earth. And I really hope the angels know what they got because we really, really miss her down here, she said. And we are going to smile. We all have to smile for her. Her friend said Panelina would want her favorite spot in the world, York Beach, to be a place to remember her love of the beach and, quote, not the horrific acts that took place there, unquote. Mm Sherry Edwards, Deputy Director of Caring Unlimited, a domestic violence advocacy group in Southern Maine, she ended the vigil, according to Seacoast Online, by calling for accountability and reminding everyone that caring and believing in people, traits that Patalina embodied, are not what led to her death. And she said people should continue to hold those values. In fact, Patalina's friend, Matranga, told the Portland Press-Herald she loved Buchanan and that's who she wanted to be with and she always saw the good in people. And, you know, they're saying Aww. don't. Right, but it kind of gets lost. She didn't do anything wrong. He's the one who killed her. Yes, exactly. The vigil was live streamed in conjunction with a church in Bedford, Massachusetts, where Patalina lived. And at 8 p.m. that night, it rang its bell 35 times for each year of her life. Her friends have a GoFundMe campaign that had collected more than $49,300 from 722 donors as of Friday for funeral costs and to help her sons. They also want to install a bench to memorialize Patalina at the beach and are in the process of filing paperwork for it. As I said, the woman from the domestic violence advocacy group is right. The issue isn't who Patalina loved, but what the man she loved did. As we discussed last week and many other times, until domestic violence is a problem that's considered a man problem, not Mm -hmm. a woman problem, it will keep happening. And the reason I highlighted this case tonight is to make this point too. The only reason this one got so much attention here in Maine and Massachusetts and probably other places the past couple weeks is it happened in daylight on a beach in front of dozens of witnesses. Normally, these happen in the quiet, or not necessarily quiet, but in the privacy of people's homes, and nobody is aware it happened until long afterwards. On one hand, it's this horrific thing. Of course, there's all the, oh, this isn't the kind of place that happens. Well, yeah, it is the kind of place that happens, but usually it just happens indoors when people aren't Mm -hmm. watching. And Laura Richards, who I've mentioned many times, (laughs) <laughs> has Your been, friend. Yes, has been pushing for legislation in the UK that focus on focuses on serial f- offenders. And she says, for too long, the focus has been on repeat victims. We need to shift that focus to serial and serious high-risk perpetrators, those who cause the harm. And she's pushing for a registry that lists serial domestic violence offenders so that they're on Good. police radar. She said in a February blog post on her website, domestic abusers should be treated like terrorists. They create fear and terror and kill more women and children than any terrorist incident year on year, yet still there is no national coordinated response to proactively identify, assess, and manage these dangerous men by police, prison, or probation services. She's speaking of the UK, but I'll just say that's true as well for the US. It's not, you know, obviously not clear whether something like that necessarily would have prevented this from happening, but he was obviously a serial offender. And the more attention is brought to the responsibility of men and the criminal justice system and the systems that surround this to recognize 
that what men do is the problem and not women, the fewer of these things will happen. It's it's a matter of a total mindset change on everyone's part. Exactly. And so that is the sad story. Thank of you. People that say it doesn't happen here, uh, about half, <laughs> I, at least half of the homicides in Maine. Well, last year, more. last year only six out of twenty were. Ooh, so. well, we're improving. But I guess. but the, but it was spiked by, for instance, that guy down east who shot the four people who we still don't know because nobody's really written about it since I know what the purpose was for all we know that could have been a domestic I think lots of times domestic violence isn't recognized I think that one that just happened in California oh yeah I think that one was right at, at the manufactured home place was domestic violence and I think there's this mindset in the press's part possibly the police's part too unless it's a boyfriend or husband doing it to the woman in the house or maybe on the beach it's not domestic violence uh, yeah you know. but anyway so you have a story for us yes i do and this is um it's a fairly old one doesn't seem like it to me because i'm old i want to say what my source is almost everything <laughs> was from the bangor daily news because it happened in Bangor and newspaper.com uh, is what I used. But also I did get some background from a book called Us and Them, A History of Intolerance in America. It was published in 1996. That must have been a pretty thick book. I didn't, I didn't read, <laughs> I didn't read the whole book. I just, I was Googling in the chapter on Charlie Howard came up. Uh, which was fairly short, but had some background information oh, that I found later in other places, but I'll still give that guy credit because I did look at it. Seacoastonline.com, I got a couple things from which that, not many. Which is the Portsmouth um, Herald, exactly. where I got some of my stuff tonight. Actually, it was it was Foster's, yeah, it was whatever, it doesn't matter. It was well, it's because the company the... bought Foster's Daily Demo So Man. anyways, so I will get started. The Kanduski Extreme starts in Garland Pond in Garland, Maine, about 28 miles northwest of Bangor. Kanduskeg Stream winds 36 miles through the towns of Corinth, Kanduskeg, and Glenburn before it gets to Bangor, where it's routed through the city by a canal that empties into the Penobscot River between the Joshua Chamberlain Bridge and the Penobscot River Bridge. Every April since 1967, except for 2020, canoes fill the stream from Kanduskeg to Bangor for an annual 16-mile race. It's kind of a big deal in the area, and not for the faint of heart. The water is cold in April, and the stream is bumpy. And if you do a Google search for Kanduskeg stream race you'd see photos of it they had to wait till april when the ice breaks uh, they can't do it before then so it's pretty cold kanduskeg which has been spelled several different ways over the years is the penobscot word for eel Ware place or little eel river from the fall of 1991 until the summer of 1993 i lived in bangor my boyfriend at the time and future husband gordon and then and then ex-husband lived in an apartment on harlow street in the old high school building. In late fall 1991, we moved into an apartment together on Palm Street. Bangor is a small city. The population presently is about 32,000. It was about 34,000 when I lived there, but that was a spike. Since the 1970s, it's been about 30 to 32,000 people. Gordon, my ex, and I used to walk all over the city. I liked living there. Part of that was because I was happy and we were in love. Ah, oh, isn't that sweet? Though Bangor may seem small to most of our listeners, it's the biggest city in that part of Maine and actually is Maine's second biggest city. It's the hub for all the surrounding areas. When you look at a map of Maine, Bangor seems like it's in the south central 
part of the state. And geographically it is. But if you go northwest or east of Bangor, it's either small towns or woods. People who live in those places do their shopping in Bangor. At least once a week or maybe more often, Gordon and I would go for long walks downtown along the river and over the bridges of the canal. When we crossed the canal on the State Street Bridge, I would look down sometimes and think of Charlie Howard. The murder happened seven years before I moved to the area, but it was a story that shocked many Mainers and made national news at the time it happened in 1984. And it was a story that was not forgotten. Even Stephen King wrote about it in his 1986 novel, It. In the book, three teenage boys throw Adrian Mellon into a canal in the fictitious town of Derry, Maine, which is basically Bangor. In the book, Adrian is killed by the evil clown Pennywise. In real life, this is what happened to Charlie Howard. Mm. On July 7th, 1984, my 19th birthday, Charlie was walking down State Street in Bangor with his friend, Roy Ogden. A car pulled up with three teenage boys and two girls inside. The teenage boys, James Baines, 15, Sean Mabry, 16, and Daniel Ness, 17, attacked Charlie and threw him over the bridge into the Kanduskeg stream. Charlie drowned. In 2014, the Bangor Daily News had an article and an online presentation on the 30-year anniversary of Charlie's death. In a prologue, Stephen King wrote, I think the death of Charlie Howard shocked people in the Bangor area out of their complacency about matters of sexual preference and prejudice. I know it did me. It's easy enough to see what happened as a stupid crime, a kind of felonious accident fueled by booze hazing that got out of hand. Probably too easy. In the aftermath of this inoffensive young man's death, the community underwent a period of self-examination that hasn't ended to this day. To me, that suggests one good thing came out of Charlie Howard's death, but when I look back on it, I'm still overcome with feelings of sadness and shame. I don't feel responsible exactly, and I'd never lay that on the community, but it's our town. We live here, which means we have to live with Charlie and continue trying to make it right. This is Rebecca again. I was living in New Hampshire at the time, but I was visiting friends in Augusta that weekend. I remember because I had a horrible ear infection and was taking antibiotics, <laughs> but I also partied with my friends because it was the weekend of the whatever race and there was a big party in downtown Augusta. Side note, the whatever race was a boat race down the Kennebec River from Augusta to Gardner in which participants used any kind of vessel the less like a boat, the better. There was also a party in Bangor that week. It was Bangor's 150th anniversary, and they were having a 10-day celebration to commemorate it. That night, there had been a performance of The Music Man on the banks of the Penobscot River. Charlie had been to a potluck supper that night at the Unitarian Church, his church of choice. It was one of the few places where he wasn't shunned for being gay. Charlie was 23. He'd grown up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. His teacher from 1976 to 1980 was Bob Lister, according to Seacoast Online. Bob Lister said of Charlie, He had some learning disabilities and was in my program. Charlie was a very caring person who was always concerned about others. And... Charlie was bullied. He was out and proud of it. Bob Lister said, Charlie always seemed to turn the other cheek. He would always convey this feeling that he was his own individual. I'm convinced that had he lived, he would have been a prominent advocate for the rights of individuals. After being a special education teacher, Bob Lister became school superintendent and later mayor of Portsmouth. As I said, Charlie did not hide who he was. He wore makeup sometimes and carried a purse according to the newspapers, but in the one photo I saw of him, besides his high school photo, which 
is the one they usually show. It looks like he has a messenger bag, not a purse. It's not mm. like a pocketbook like, you know, right. um, Nana used to carry. <laughs> he had a slight build and had been bullied all through school. He suffered from asthma, which made playing sports difficult for him, if not impossible. He skipped his high school graduation because he didn't want to deal with the taunts he was sure to hear when he went up on stage to collect his diploma, and he didn't want his family to hear them and see Aww. how he was treated by his fellow students. Charlie eventually moved to Ellsworth, Maine in the winter of 1983-1984 with a boyfriend, but that didn't last. He ended up in Bangor in January 1984. I couldn't find out much about it, but I'm assuming it was because he was homeless and Bangor had better resources for someone in Charlie's predicament. He stayed with friends he'd made in Bangor for for a while, but after a month, he couldn't find a job, so he went back to Portsmouth to move back in with his mother, Patience Baronsky, and his stepfather. But he only stayed in New Hampshire a week or so. He didn't get along with his stepfather, and he moved in with another man, but that didn't work out. So he called Scott and Paul, his Bangor friends. They could tell he was hurting and told him he should come back to Bangor. Charlie's attitude was different on his return to Maine. He started attending the Bangor Unitarian Church, and he joined their gay and lesbian support group, Interweave. Mm. He got a part-time job with the city of Bangor through the work fair program. He got a kitten and a room at a rooming house on 1st Street. His landlord, Gary Balduck, told the Bangor Daily News, He was a good tenant. He was clean, and that's what a landlord looks for in a tenant. I had no trouble from Charlie whatsoever. He was just a feminine type of guy, and I don't think he would have fought back against any attack. Charlie was a decent human being. Another 10 years, and he probably would have mellowed out. He probably still would have been gay, but he would have been mellow about it. <laughs> now, I want to remind people, um, maybe I should have said this at the beginning, but this was 1984, right. which it was a long time ago, 36 years ago, 37 years ago. And some of the language and way of people talking might offend people when I'm quoting them. I just want you to know it's not, I'm not condoning anything. I'm just right. quoting what people are saying. So and it is hard to hear sometimes, but people need to know what things were like back right. then. Charlie's quote flamboyance was something that was in every article about the crime at the time. And also, does anyone ever use the word flamboyant for anything besides someone who's gay? No. Not very often. Several days after his death, when his killers were charged, one headline in the Bangor Daily News was, Why Gentle Charlie, friends ask. Gay Bangor man's flamboyance may have made <laughs> him a target. Mm. Now, in 2021, this kind of attitude is infuriating. And even back then, 37 years ago, there were people who found this mindset ludicrous, much like blaming rape victims for what they were wearing or how they were behaving. Gay bashing was common. On July 10th, 1984, the Bangor Daily News had a story with the headline, Gay Community Cites Harassment. In the article, Lieutenant Richard Stockford of the Bangor Police Department said that the incident that led to Charlie's death was, quote, not absolutely the first of its kind, end quote, but he told the paper that statistics of gay bashing crimes were not available because of the way the cases were reported. Quote, you almost have to read between the lines. Sturgis Haskins, the secretary of Interweave, told the BDN, the, which is the Bangor Daily News, in case anyone doesn't mm -hmm. know, this incident was extreme, but by no means uncommon. Everybody has a story, but no one knows about it. People are afraid to go to the police because the police are hostile. Sturgis told the paper that Bangor's gay community numbered several thousand, but it was, quote, hidden and very fragmented. Charlie was not well received by a lot of Bangor residents. He was often taunted and bullied by people as he walked down the street. Unlike a lot of the LGBTQ community, Charlie didn't follow the unwritten rules. He didn't hide the fact that he was gay. 
He would make up his eyes, wear earrings, have his purse over his shoulder. He'd call people dearie and sing loudly when he felt like it. Often, I am what I am from Lacasia Falls. He got kicked out of West Market Disco for dancing with another man. While shopping one day, a woman called him a queer and a pervert. But as Charlie left the store, although he was afraid and shaken, he blew everyone a kiss. Even though he would not be made to conform, the homophobia was starting to get to Charlie. People staring and making comments were starting to spook him. He found his kitten strangled and dead in front of his house. He began to be afraid to go out. His friends at the Unitarian Church in Interweave became his lifeline. Mary Jane Kennedy met Charlie at a self-help group. The Bangor Daily News didn't say which one. She told the paper, The first time I saw him, my first impression was, Oh God, the Queen Mary just landed. But then I got to know him, and he just wanted to be loved, just loved. He didn't want to hurt anyone, and he didn't want to be hurt. He talked to me one time about his getting harassed for wearing his makeup and carrying his purse and wearing his earring, but he wasn't trying to harass people. He was so open and bubbly. Another friend, identified only as a member of the gay community, said, Gentle Charlie wouldn't hurt a fly. How could this happen to him? He was also flam and that's probably why he was a target for harassment. To take the life of this young man who's just beginning to live simply because he's gay is an outrage. Charlie's life will have an impact. Charlie's death will have an impact. We will not let people forget. Sherry Ingalls was a fellow tenant in the rooming house. She said Charlie was afraid of being physically attacked. She and Charlie spent many nights up late talking. She said, it all just seems so unfair to me. He was just a kid. He had so much living to do. Sturgis Haskins from Interweave said Charlie was, quote, a very good-looking guy. He was very open about his gayness. He wouldn't have fought back, nor would he have provoked any attack. Roy Ogden, who was with Charlie when he was attacked, would not speak to the Bangor Daily News because he said police had asked him not to, but also because his life had been threatened and he was afraid. On the night he was killed, as I said, Charlie had attended a potluck dinner sponsored by Interweave. At around 10 o'clock, Charlie decided to walk to the post office in the Margaret Chase Smith Federal Building on Harlow Street to pick up his mail at his P.O. box. He asked his friend Roy Ogden to come with him. While walking on State Street, a car slowed down behind them. Charlie thought he recognized it as a car of some teenagers who had harassed him a few days before. The kids in the car were Sean Mabry, Daniel Ness, and Jim Baines. In the back seat were Jennifer Vafiatis and Sean Avanadestein, 17 and 15 respectively. The teenagers were coming from a party on the way to the store to get beer. One of the girls had a fake ID, I'm assuming the older girl, Jennifer, and was going to buy the beer. And back then, the IDs were not photo IDs. They were just a piece of paper that had your name and had a description on it. Didn't I once I had yours, yes. For for you to use, yeah. The boys got out of the car, and one of them yelled, Hey, fag! Charlie and Roy started to run, but so did the three boys. The two girls remained in the back seat of the car. While they were running, Charlie tripped and fell. His asthma started to act up and he couldn't get up. The boys fell on Charlie, kicking and punching him. Jim Baines, who was 15 and a high school athlete, yelled, Over the bridge! And the boys picked Charlie up. Roy Ogden was at the far end of the bridge watching. Daniel Ness, 17, grabbed Charlie under the arms and Jim grabbed his leg. Charlie was gasping for air by this time and telling the boys he couldn't swim. To please not throw him in. They lifted Charlie up onto the railing. Charlie grabbed and his hand was pried loose by one of the boys. Sean Mabry was the one who gave the push that toppled Charlie 20 feet into the canal. Jennifer Vafiades later testified, I looked over and saw a guy on the ground and people kicking him. Later I saw a leg going over the bridge. The girls were trying to start the car, yelling to the boys to come on. 
Roy was watching from the end of the bridge. The boys threatened him and told him he better not tell anyone. Then they laughed and jumped in the car and took off. As the car took off, Roy heard them whooping and laughing. Jennifer testified they were laughing, just laughing like when you tell a joke. Shauna testified, we asked what if the guy dies, but they said he won't die. They didn't expect him to die. Roy ran down State Street until he found a fire alarm and pulled it. The police and fire engines were there in minutes. Charlie's body was found two hours later, a few hundred feet downstream from the bridge. Meanwhile, the boys went back to the party where they bragged to their friends that they, quote, jumped a fag and threw him in the stream. Daniel Ness turned himself in the next day, and I'll have more details later. Sean Mabry and Jim Baines decided to leave town, but they didn't make it far. By Sunday night, all three boys were in the Hancock County Jail in Ellsworth, which is about 25 miles to the east. They were taken there because juveniles couldn't be held in the Penobscot County Jail in Bangor. The three boys were in district court in Bangor Monday morning, July 9th, charged with murder. The Bangor Daily News wrote, One suspect wore a camp staff t-shirt. Another appeared to have red eyes from crying. Assistant Attorney General Tom Goodwin, who's been in some of our other Mm. episodes, when asked if the three would be tried as adults, said, We haven't had the chance to review the matter, to make that determination yet. We'll know that in a couple of weeks. The three boys were released to the custody of their parents and were ordered to stay at home and only leave their homes in the company of a parent or other adults approved by the court. Jim Baines told police that either Charlie or Roy had made sexual comments to him a few weeks prior to the attack. Personally, I'm dubious about this claim. It sounds like the type of thing you always used to hear from gay bashers. Like, oh, he was, you know, he said something to me. You know what I mean? Remember... The year was 1984, and like I said, to me it doesn't seem that long ago, although it is. People think Maine is backward, especially when you get away from the southern part of the state, the part people who live north of Portland like to call northern Massachusetts. Yes. But still, as I went through the letters to the editor in the weeks after Charlie's murder, I found about 70% of the letters were against the murders and against homophobia, and 30% were anti-gay. Here are two that were side by side that I'll read in full because they're brief. First one, Charlie, no threat. To the editor, Charlie Howard was my friend. He was gentle and trusting. He loved people, flowers, animals, and birds. In other words, life. I have several mementos of Charlie, for he loved to make little gifts. His childlike innocence and frail physique made him highly vulnerable. Whatever his sexual preference, Charlie was not in any way a threat to the straight society of which I am part. He was a victim of it. Mrs. Miles Lee Dodge. Mm. And then the other one that was right next to it, pandering to gays from Mm. Camden. To the editor. It is distressing to see your writers and some of the clergy pandering to homosexuals. Part of the duty of the clergy is to teach morality, and the press should encourage the same. Accepting homosexuality is not the answer. There is a difference between a slip and a commitment. The lessons to be learned from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fall of the Roman Empire should not be ignored, whether one is Christian or not. Richard F. Harden Hmm. Some other sentiments from readers of the Bangor Daily News, just excerpts from letters. And the reason I'm printing these, I mean, I'm reading these is because I think it's better to hear voices of the people from back then than for me to try to say what they were saying. So just so people know. And I just mixed them up. But they were all written within two weeks of the killing. 
Brother Gerard Hickey of St. Joseph's Church in Old Town wrote, The violent death of Charles O. Howard was a tra tragic culmination of a week-long celebration of Bangor's 150th birthday. It is even sadder still that such an incident occurred in a community where Christianity seems to flourish and abound. The time is long overdue for all of us who lay claim to a God who is the loving God to search our consciences, conscience, consciences and see where we as a community have failed to instill love in our families, especially our children. Is insult, injury, and murder what Jesus' message of love and compassion is all about? I doubt it very much. There's room in his kingdom for all, and the basis of his judgment is not sexual orientation. Doug Wooster Jones of Bangor wrote, Why is it commonplace for a person charged with as serious and hideous a crime as murder to be allowed to go back to the open arms of mom and or dad, mm. especially when you might consider that his alleged victim will never see human loving arms again? It was stated by a friend of Charlie's on the day after his alleged murder that it was Charlie's courage his outward bravery to be pr the proud homosexual he was, that killed him. I could only add to the fact that it was more the ignorance, fear, and insecurity established by an extremely misinformed and hypocritical society, the one we're all so proud to live in. Steve Simpson of Orland wrote, The city of Bangor and surrounding communities should be shocked and appalled at the senseless death of Charlie Howard. It is incomprehensible how something so meaningless could happen in this area. Aren't we educating children better than this? H. Jordan of LaGrange wrote, The death in Bangor was tragic, but it was a death due to whatever manner, not a gay rights issue. And it should and will be handled by law that way. This situation should not be used to further the ambitions of the gay rights groups, which is what it looks like. They continue to want John Q. Public to accept them in their unnatural lifestyle. Hmm. If God intended homosexuality, he would have created only one species of animal, be it male or female. Ronald D. Chase of Rockland wrote, Besides pointing out the tragedy of the related events, the public outcry concerning the death of a reported homosexual in Bangor recently also provides some insight into the mentality of the many of those clamoring the loudest. While we are invariably inundated with reminders of the presumed innocence of such liberal cause celebrity as Angela Davis or the Berrigan brothers when they are awaiting trial, not one of the individuals interviewed in the news meaning Bangor Daily News, has noted that the three kids charged have yet to be convicted at a time when it's fashionable to find pseudo-psychological excuses for serial murderers and child killers. No one has expressed any such concern for the suspects in this case. Rob Roberge of Caribou wrote, As tragic as Howard's death was, however, I resent it being used to prey on sympathy and advance the cause of homosexuality. I'm grieved that our society has degenerated to the point, as Joanne Dauphiny, readers write July 11th, that one-tenth of our friends, neighbors, her relatives, and co-workers are lesbian and gay men. I believe she is overestimating, but even a fraction of her estimation is disgusting. The Bible clearly shows the only way for homosexuals to, to attain God's kingdom is to confess their sin and change their ways. Only when the homosexual is ready to repent will I welcome him or her to worship the Lord with me. Hmm. Andrea Ritchie of East Holden wrote, 
I am appalled at the fact that the three juveniles accused of murder and the death of Charles Howard are resting comfortably in their own homes. Those three boys need to be taught a valuable lesson in life. They should be sitting right now in a jail cell without an ounce of freedom, stewing and thinking about what they did. Nancy Salisbury of Rockland wrote, The death of Charles Howard has shaken the people of Bangor. We were just congratulating ourselves on the genuinely fine River City Festival. Just as we are feeling good about our community, however, a tragic event occurred that should make us take a deeper look. The alleged murder of a gay man for simply being gay reveals that prejudice is alive and well in Bangor. The temptation will be to prosecute the three young men suspected of this crime and close the chapter quickly. Rather than scapegoat these three young men, we all need to question our own hearts. What kind of prejudices and violence do we harbor there? What privileges do we cling to that benefit us at the cost of others? Richard B. Hughes of Bangor wrote, Why has nothing been said about people who walk the streets and wait in the parks to try to prey upon young and impressionable children of our city. Mm. They are bringing the majority of trouble on themselves. Are we supposed to feel sorry for these people? I don't think so. So what, Edna Charlie St- Howard was preying on people by Apparently. walking down the street? <laughs> Edna Staples of Belfast wrote, My heart aches for Charlie Howard and for the three boys accused of his death. I can see how it happened, but it shouldn't have. Yes, homosexuality is wrong, but it is the homosexuality itself that needs to be hated, not the person. My prayers are for all of them, and I pray it doesn't happen again. Kenneth Morgan of Bangor wrote, Although I do not know Charlie Howard, I know Charlie Howard's. Although I do not know the three youths allegedly responsible for his death, I know such people. Most readers of this letter will find themselves in a similar situation. All of us gay and straight have a moral imperative to do something more than lament this tragedy. And those who gloat over the tragedy, and sadly there are those, and those who are indifferent must be made to realize that our community will not tolerate outward manifestations of hate and prejudice and violence. Samuel Pennington of Waterville wrote, Can you imagine what would have happened if Charlie Howard had been the father of four and a, quote, respected citizen? Do you think those accused of his murder would be home with Mama today? Dana Martin from Mars Hill wrote, The death of Charles Howard was unnecessary, and the three boys charged with his murder should be punished. No one has the right to take another's life, but for the homosexual community to fight for laws to protect their rights is absurd. Let's not lose sight of the fact that these are sick people. Hmm. I can only feel disgust and pity for them. And this is Rebecca here. He had the last two sentences he he was referring to the LGBTQ people, not the boys who killed Charlie. Right. And the last one, Teresa DeVries of Brewer wrote, I am ashamed and I am frightened. I'm ashamed because I am part of a society that allowed the alleged murder of Charlie Howard. I may not personally hate homosexuals, but I'm somehow a participant in a culture and society that killed him. So I choose to wear a pink triangle as an expression of my grief for Charlie Howard and my concern for what his death means for us all. So that kind of gives you an idea. Yeah. It was definitely two sides. I mean, it wasn't. On July 17th, 1984, the three accused appeared in court again before Judge David Cox. Although they were all in court together, they appeared separately before the judge, with each having his own lawyer. They had all been in their parents' custody the whole time, even though the Bangor Daily News reported one of them had violated his bail conditions. More on that later. AAG Thomas Goodwin requested a continuance to have the time to decide whether or not to 
prosecute the three as adults or juveniles, which Judge Cox granted. Many observers in the courtroom wore lavender ribbons to show their support for Charlie. One woman had a sign that said, we want justice, but had to leave it outside the courtroom. The three young men pled not guilty. When the judge asked A.A.G. Goodwin if he objected to the boys remaining in the custody of their parents, he didn't object. At this, according to the Bangor Daily News, quote, a murmur of dissatisfaction (laughs) echoed through the courtroom crowd. After the arraignment, Roy Ogden, Charlie's friend, who had been with him the night of the murder spoke to reporters he said only hours after the boys had been released from custody on july 10th roy saw jim baines in west market square which is near the murder scene jim baines was not in the company of an adult according to roy jim yelled hey faggot as the Bangor daily news wrote at first i didn't recognize him ogden said he said a friend with him recognized baines immediately i called the bangor police department and it's like no response ogden said before addressing reporters he had complained to the assistant attorney general about the incident was told to contact the police department bangor police chief thomas placilla who has been the chief investigator of the circumstances surrounding howard's death said tuesday morning ogden's complaint was fully investigated found to be without merit i wonder how they investigated did they just ask jim baines hey was that you and and he's like no Market square and he's no, like no. I'm at home oh, oh. i was at home with my parents ahe goodwin told the bdn that the reason the three boys were released to their parents was because the state and court were satisfied that the community would be safe and that the attorney general james Turney, was taking an active role in the case and in a side note James Tierney is married to author Elizabeth Strout. Mm. Did you know that? Yes, I did. And also a weird coincidence is whatever that book was she wrote, the guy in it was an assistant district attorney, or he was, no, I mean attorney general or whatever. She wrote that before she met him. Also that day, Judge Cox entered two items into the record. A letter signed, a concerned U.S. citizen, who said they would think twice before visiting Bangor, and a card with a rose that came from the Gay Lesbian Alliance of Somerville, Medford, Massachusetts. The letter asked if the judge believed the streets were safe with them on the loose, meaning the three accused. The card said, we weep for Charlie, we cry out for justice. In August, the Bangor Daily News printed this letter from Stephen R. Marshall of Bangor. To the editor, I'd like to address a long-time problem on Middle Street in downtown Bangor where male homosexuals of the area find it amusing to hang around all hours of the night sitting in their cars or lining the streets. I, for one, would like to see these young men off the street before someone gets hurt. The gay community in the Bangor area is large. The gays should organize and start a club or open their own bar. Other cities have done it. Why not Bangor? War. This is the 1980s. They should come out of their closets and have an active voice in the community. Charlie Howard was a martyr. Let's not let his tragic death go unnoticed. And he has a good point, but weirdly put, though, like I know, like he's saying they should come out of the closet and everything, but be segregated from the rest of society. I know gay bars also get attacked. In Augusta, when I was in high school, there was a a gay bar called Papa Joe's, and it was on Mount Vernon Ave in a house. Like every time I go by it, I think of that. Oh, that Uh, was where it was owned by the father of a guy I went to school with. So people used to tease him all the time because of it. Then they moved it to it was on Water Street, kind of across where the Capitol 
theater is, but it doesn't have any windows or anything. It's just like a metal door, like in a brick building, because their windows get broken and stuff mm. all the time. You know, and people used to make fun of it all the time, and probably I did too, because it was the way people were. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying I was right. Anyways, no. in October, the three boys, James Baines, 15, Sean Mabry, 16, and Daniel Ness, 17, all pled guilty to a reduced charge of manslaughter as juveniles, which means by main law at the time and now, I think, that they would not spend more than up to their 21st birthday in jail, which would be at the main youth center in South Portland. AAG Goodwin told the court that this was not a plea bargain, but rather a reassessment of the charges based on the facts. Outside the courthouse, Ann Phibbs, who was a member of the Bangor Area Gay, Lesbian, Straight Coalition, read from a prepared statement, We are shocked and outraged at the lenient and irresponsible prosecution of the Charles Howard homicide. To allow the three individuals to be treated as juveniles instead of adults and to plea bargain for murder to manslaughter lessens the severity of the crime and may fail to act as a deterrent. But Thomas Goodwin had told reporters there just wasn't enough evidence that they intended to kill Charlie Howard. What they did was a real bad thing, and I think they admitted it was a real bad thing. I think the evidence is clear that they didn't intend to kill him. In fact, they didn't even know he was dead when they left the scene. Mm. The judge is going to set the sentence. It's a serious crime, but ultimately it's up to the judge, end quote. As I said before, the sentence for the crime, according to the Maine Juvenile Code, is that the maximum sentence is at the Maine Youth Center for an indeterminate amount of time, not to extend beyond the defendant's 21st birthday. The juvenile sentence for both manslaughter and murder is the same. You know, it wasn't a plea bargain, and it doesn't really matter. If they're tried as juveniles, it's, it's what it is. I used to work at the Maine Youth Center as a mentor to girls in the mid-1990s. Wow, there are so many angles concerning you in this. Hey, I can insert myself in the story if I feel like it. Juvenile sentencing is weird and not as defined as adult sentencing. I used to think it was fucked up and weird. Yeah. The kids would not get a sentence of, say, six months. They had to basically earn their freedom by reaching goals and getting points. Then if there were infractions, they'd lose points, and they would be set free at 21 regardless. From what I saw, there was little rehabilitation going on, and they just seemed to languish there. I think it's horrible. It still is. It's a horrible system. The statement read by Ann Phibbs that day also said, Several years sentence without parole in the main youth center and mandatory counseling for these three individuals to deal with their homophobic attitudes would be appropriate. This would ensure punishment as well as rehabilitation, end quote. Charlie's advocates threw carnations off the State Street Bridge to remember Charlie. At about 6 that evening, people began marching in a circle in front of the courthouse, carrying signs that read, Justice will fail. Memories will not. We are friends of Charlie Howard. We are everywhere. We will not go away. A plea for justice, not bargains. As they marched from the courthouse to the State Street Bridge, they sang, We are a gentle, angry people singing, singing for our lives. A year after Charlie's murder, the anniversary was remembered with a speaker at Pierce Memorial Park, a service at the Unitarian Church, and a march to remember Charlie. Members of the Bangor Area Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Coalition, which I'm going to start calling just Baglisk. Baglisk? <laughs> well, it's too long to say Bangor Area. It's B-A-G... Bagless. Or you could just say the coalition or something. Yeah, whatever. Told the Bangor Daily News that things were, quote, still pretty scary, end quote, for them. Joanne Dauphiny, a member of the coalition, told the paper, people reacted to Charlie's murder. They confronted their feelings about it for the first time. They were talking about it over coffee every morning. Another member said, 
Whenever you have people talking about it, that is a very positive forward movement. Sunday evening, July 7th, 1985, my 20th birthday, the marchers crossed the State Street Bridge wearing lavender ribbons and carrying signs that read, Stop the Hatred, Never Again, July 7th, 1984. Human rights should be for everyone. They also sang the same song that they'd sang months before. We are a gentle, angry people. We are singing for our lives. The marchers threw flowers in the Kanduskig. Among the flowers was a wreath made of a red rose, baby's breath, ferns and lavender, and white ribbons. The wreath was at the request of Charlie's mother, who told the Unitarian Church in a letter that she'd had to move and get an unlisted number because of death threats. And she was still living in Portsmouth. Also a year after the crime, AAG Thomas Goodwin was asked about Charlie's killers, how they were doing. Goodwin told the Bangor Daily News, quote, one is doing quite well, one is neutral, and one is not doing well at all. He said he wasn't sure when any of them would be released. It would depend on, quote, whether or not they progress in their personal and psychological problems and whether they grow up. Hmm. The principal of Bangor High School told the Bangor Daily News the killing was, quote, discussed with a great deal of interest at the time of the trial. As time went by, it was discussed less and less, end quote. Still, The high school was implementing programs to teach tolerance. The teachers were attending workshops with titles like Equality and Effectiveness in Classroom Teaching. Dr. Lee Nikoloff of the Bangor Area Coalition told the Bangor Daily News that the efforts were, quote, a start, but it's risky for people in education to take a stand. But she thought people would be more open to discuss homosexuality, quote, once the shock value wears off. It probably wouldn't be as shocking today as a year ago. Dr. Nikoloff also also said that Charlie's death had caused a lot of the gay community to be more cautious since harassment was still common. Quote, you don't look at each other too fondly. You don't hold hands, end quote. Other members of the coalition agreed they were more frightened to be out at night, and some said it caused them to go further into the closet. But Nikoloff said that gay people had, quote, much more community presence in direct response to Charlie's death, end quote. Another interesting article around the anniversary of the murder had the headline, Officer Says Gay Bar Might Reduce violence. Lieutenant Donald O'Halloran, who is chief of detectives for the Bangor Police Department's Criminal Investigation Division, said gay men cruising was dangerous for them. He told the Bangor Daily News, making sure to point out that this was his own opinion, not the department's, a gay bar would probably be a good idea. Whenever you can minimize the risk of being an easily accessible victim, then you're bound to have an impact on reducing that type of crime. It's hard to predict what the overall ramifications of a gay bar would be in Bangor because we've never had one as far as I know. You Hmm. still might get a few rednecks who want to start some trouble, but it would certainly be a more controlled environment than what they have now. The assailants of homosexuals are looking for an opportunity and they find it. Here's an opportunity for them to harass someone, humiliate them, beat them up, take their money. They know there's a very good chance that they will never get in trouble with the law because the homosexual victim may be too embarrassed to call the police and say, I was down here looking for a boyfriend and these guys attacked me. Hmm. It's me again, (laughs) Rebecca. Well, Lieutenant O'Halloran told the paper that Bangor is a pretty safe place. People need to always be careful. He kind of walked the line, pretty much blaming the victims by saying, if I walk around downtown at 3 a.m. night after night with $20 bills coming out of my pocket, the chances of me getting robbed are much greater than if I hid the money or only walked around during daylight hours. We can all be victims of one crime or another in our lives, but you try to reduce those odds by taking steps to protect yourself. I think it's one of those things the gay community has left itself susceptible to. They are easy 
victims. They always hang around the same places. They're out alone. They're out late at night and they're an easy target. Right. And it's the same obvious thing as when people blame women for being out. Yeah, exactly. Is the problem isn't gay people being out being gay. It's Mm -hmm. people beating up the gay people. No shit. No shit. I know. And O'Halloran told the BDN that reports of harassment were down. But he also conceded, it's only fair to assume that there are more incidents than are actually reported. No kidding, O'Halloran. Every year around July 7th, Charlie's death was remembered with a memorial service at the Unitarian Church and a march and a rally, and always with flowers thrown off the bridge in his memory. Although, uh, I wish they wouldn't pollute the stream with those ribbons. Yeah, no kidding. Apparently they're always saying they're all tied with lavender and white ribbons. It's like, well, what kind of ribbons are they? Anyway, on the fourth anniversary, 1988, gay rights activist Jonathan D. Katz spoke to the crowd, quote, let us celebrate Charlie's life, celebrate our love, our lust, her smile, his pretty long hair, celebrate with your hands and tongue, kiss a little, hug a little, and pat some fanny. In such a small justice is written, ultimate victory over death and over silence, end quote. Someone wrote a letter to the editor complaining about I'm that. I'm sure too. they did. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Katz said the State Steep Bridge was, quote, one of the holy places in the history of the quest for gay rights, not only because a gay man died there, but also because a community cared enough to muster forces of resistance. Nothing separated us from Charlie Howard except that he was where he was and we were not. We were kicked into consciousness by the guardians of decency in this country, end quote. In his speech, Katz talked about similar crimes, one in San Francisco where a man was beaten to death by teenage boys who said he propositioned them. Another one was in Michigan where teenage boys beat a man and kicked him with steel-toed boots, then returned with a sledgehammer to finish him off. In both cases, the defendants were not charged with murder, and the defense was self-defense and justifiable homicide. In one of the cases, the judge said the deceased had contributed to his own death by his own reprehensible behavior, mm. end quote. Katz told the crowd to turn shame into pride, pride into action, and seize what we should have, what should have been ours long ago. Rage is a sword, but it can cut both ways. We must rally around our lives, hopes, dreams, and goals, as well as our tragedies and deaths. We are visible as a community, most often in our deaths, because of AIDS and memorial marches. Be visible in your lives. That is where the battles are fought and one. And I want to say, this is me again, that yes, that was 1988. So AIDS was running rampant through the gay community yeah. and, and other communities back then. It's hard to remember now because for people that weren't there at the time, but it was a death sentence if you had AIDS. Yeah. I mean, nowadays people can control it with drugs, but they couldn't back then. Anyway, um, marchers put a wooden plaque on the State Street Bridge that said, Charlie Howard Memorial Bridge. I'm sure it didn't last there very long. Mm. They shouted, what do we want? Civil rights. When do we want it now? And money for AIDS, not war. Tracy Sampson, a marcher from Penobscot, told the Bangor Daily News, We are criticized for being too gay, too dykey, too queer, too butch, too femmy. When Charlie Howard came into a room, he was himself. Be proud of what you are. About a week or so after the fifth anniversary of Charlie's death, there was a letter to the editor written by Linda Buckland of Belfast. I'll just read the letter. In reference to articles and news concerning Charlie Howard and other homosexuals, why don't they just give it up and get the counseling they obviously need? Mm. I get so tired of picking up the paper or tuning on the TV and hearing them complain 
because people can't accept them having sex with the same sex. I do not like to be condemned because I still retain some morals, values, and I am normal. What will these people promote next? Sex with children or animals? Wouldn't Mm. surprise me. It makes me angry to hear I suffer from homophobia just because I cannot accept a woman having sex with another woman or men having sex with men. And I'm writing here, ha ha, because there was a typo in the paper that said, or men having sex with me instead (laughs) of men having sex with men. It makes me sick to even think of it. I know the majority of the population feel the same way. Homosexuals talk about their harassment and needing protection. What about us normal people walking around who get harassed by homosexuals? Give those three men some credit for being able to understand that homosexuality is wrong and always will be. To the homosexual community, don't keep trying to spread your sickness to the rest of us. Mm. We don't want to see or hear it. Please, please stop before something else happens. So she's saying, give those three men some credit for being able to understand right, the boy that homosexuality is wrong. I like it though. She says she doesn't like being called homophobic, even though she can't stand the thought of people it, having sex. Even though every line in that letter <laughs> was homophobic. No. Including how, how many instances were there? I would like to know of homosexuals harassing straight people. Well, on the sixth anniversary of Charlie's death, the title of the talk given by Reverend Douglas Morgan Strong was Participating in Our Own Oppression. The title came from a conversation the Reverend had had with Charlie just days before Charlie was killed. At the time, the Reverend Strong was a minister in Augusta and was friends with Charlie. The Reverend suggested to Charlie that he might have an easier time in life if he toned it down a bit, didn't act so gay. Charlie told the Reverend Strong, I will not participate in my own oppression. Good for him. I know. At the end of the 1980s, the Maine legislature was working on a gay rights bill. The Maine Lesbian Gay Political Alliance was founded after Charlie's death. The Bangor Coalition was also born out of the tragedy. I was going to go into the history of the gay rights movement in Maine, but it's just too long and complicated. Mm. But I will say that Charlie's death was a definite turning point in the movement. Not only did it bring awareness to straight people like me who chose to pretend this kind of harassment didn't exist or or to downplay it, but it spurred on the braver of the gay community to fight for their rights. Unfortunately, it also scared a lot of gay people from being themselves, lest they too be victimized. Six years after Charlie died, Robin Gorsling of the Gay Lesbian Community Network told the Bangor Daily News, We feel that in six years there's been some improvement in Maine, but we have a long way to go. Maybe we are less likely to have someone thrown off a bridge, but it could still happen. It might be that the gay community is more conscious and we are taking care of ourselves better. But the violent acts still happen. If we've made a little progress, we have a lot more to do. On March 24, 1993, the following letter to the editor appeared in the Bangor Daily News. Nearly nine years ago, I was a participant in a terrible crime. Mm. Myself and two companions beat and threw a homosexual man off a bridge to his death. I believe Charlie Howard was an innocent man. He did not deserve to die. This tragic event has been on my mind every day since it took place. Knowing you were involved in another man's death is extremely difficult to live with. I have made the choice to do my best in dealing with my emotions, but I feel obligated to do everything I can to try to prevent something like this from happening again. I do not expect forgiveness from everybody. My crime was far too severe to ask for forgiveness. My goal now is to reach out to the younger generation, to share my feelings and experiences in great hopes that someone can learn from the mistakes I've made 
Educate the children of today. Teach them that discrimination is wrong. No one deserves to be beaten or harassed. None of us has the right to judge others, no matter how different they seem to be. I was involved in the ultimate act of discrimination, which I can truly say was the biggest mistake of my life. There was a bill in front of the legislature that would add the words, quote, sexual orientation to the main human rights law. I have read the bill and see nothing wrong with it. If this bill will finally help end discrimination in Maine, I support it and respectfully urge that it be passed into law. Jim Baines, Bangor. Two months later, May 3rd, 1993, the Bangor Daily News had an article about Jim Baines and how he was trying to atone for his crime by speaking publicly against discrimination and writing a book about his life the proceeds of which were going to go to a foundation at Portsmouth High School where Charlie Howard went to school. The foundation's mission would be to spread cultural tolerance. And I think he did write a book, but I didn't really look it up. He was also slated to speak on MTV in front of the Maine State Legislature and at schools statewide spreading his message of tolerance. By the way, I tried to find a clip from MTV, but I couldn't find it. Baines told the BDN, I'm not seeking forgiveness. I can never be forgiven for what I did, but I can try and convince other kids not to wreck lives. Of the crime, Jim said, it happened so fast. It was just supposed to be a good prank, you know. Tell our friends we scared the homo that he crawled out soaking wet. He said he was ashamed of the crime and couldn't believe the way he was shown on TV as a killer, a symbol of hatred. He prayed every night to die in his sleep. Two years after his sentencing, he was released and went back to Bangor High School. I think he was 15, Mm -hmm. so he was probably like 17. He said, we attacked Charlie Howard because he was different only because he was different. We had no right to inflict violence. We had no right to make him our victim and his family our victims and our families our victims, end quote. Ten years after Charlie's death, the Bangor Daily News had an article about Sean Mabry. The reporter described Sean Mabry as a handsome and articulate young man. Hmm. He lives with his mother. He likes to golf and ski and works in the Bangor area as a bartender. He's polite and appears to have his life together, end quote. He also had a record of assault, criminal (laughs) trespassing, drunk driving, several instances of each of these charges. The article said he is no longer offended by the gay lifestyle. That's what the reporter said. Was but, I mean, was that stuff about his criminal history in that article? Yes, but oh, okay. it, but it said, well, if you dig a little deeper, he has had a few scrapes oh, with the Jesus law. Jesus Christ. You know, Sean Mabry told the paper that Charlie Howard was not his first victim. Sean had been gay bashing for at least eight months before he killed Charlie. And I want to talk about this after. Mm, yeah. Sean dropped out of school the winter of 1983-1984. He hung out with high school friends and their nightly entertainment was harassed harassing the men who hung out on Middle Street. The men would cruise and meet up. Middle Street is a one-way street downtown. It like, goes down a hill, and it's relatively untraveled and dark at night. It's Since it's one way, it's not one of the you know main thoroughfares. Sean told the BDN of his attitude back then, quote, It was something different, totally odd. I didn't like it. Some of the things they said did anger me. He told a story about seeing a former teacher on Middle Street talking to another man. Sean approached the two men and confronted them. The teacher left, but the other man didn't, so Sean broke his window. Of his first assault on a gay man, Sean said, It's a complete horror story. It scares me to think back on it. It was madness that went on then. 
And I need to say now, Rebecca speaking, that the writing of these stories back then really bothers me now. Yeah. For instance, this this is a quote from the article. Mabry and a friend approached the car window of a homosexual parked in the middle of the street. Throughout all these stories, they don't call them men or anything. They just call them homosexuals. One of the articles I was looking, when I was looking through articles, said something like um, gay thrown off bridge or something like that instead mm-hmm. of man, you know. Back then, I probably read the articles and didn't really think anything right. of it. Well, AP, AP style, you know, which newspapers and stuff go by, sometime, I want to say maybe about 15 or so years ago, one of the things that changed was to not identify people like that. It, it They called it like the people first policy. Exactly. Where a person isn't a label, but like instead of saying a black or a gay, that they're people... And it goes for, like, disabled people as well, you know. And um, it, But it, you look back and it's, like, nut, nuts. So anyway, Sean and his friend approached this guy's car. Sean's friend pretended to be gay, and the two boys got into the man's car. Their group of dirtbag friends were supposed to be following them in another car. Sean noticed that the car wasn't there behind them. Sean got in the back seat. His friend got in the front seat. It was because their friends had stopped to get baseball bats and pool cues. Mm. They all met up again in a parking lot on Hammond Street. The group of teens started beating the driver through his car windows. They tried to get his keys out of the ignition, but they couldn't. I think the two boys, Sean and his friend, had gotten out of the guy's car. They smashed his headlights, taillights, and windows as the man crouched on the floor of the car trying to protect himself. Sean said he eventually reached up and put the car in drive. Then while lying on the floor, pushed the gas pedal and sped straight across Hammond Street. He got into another parking lot across the street and was able to get away, end quote. Hmm. This happened a few months before Sean and his two friends encountered Charlie Howard. That night, July 7th, 1984, Sean was driving. Daniel Ness was in the passenger seat. Jim Baines was in the back seat with Jennifer Vafiades and Sean Evanda Destine. It was about 10 o'clock and they had been drinking all evening. They had just tried without success to buy beer at the 7-Eleven on Hammond Street. They were crossing the bridge right around the Bangor Savings Bank when they saw Charlie and Ray walking on State Street. According to Sean, one of the boys said Charlie had made a sexual comment to him weeks before. I think this is bullshit, as I said. Yep. And Sean is still trying to make it seem like he is a little less at fault than he actually is by saying that. Um, Sean stopped the car and the three boys got out. Sean said, we didn't say anything at first, but they understood that we were there to cause trouble. So according to Sean, he started chasing Roy Ogden, who ran up State Street. Quote, he was going to pull the fire alarm. I chased him toward Exchange Street, but then I turned around and went back down toward where the other two were with Howard. I remember he was on the ground. We punched and kicked him. I was barefoot. Somebody yelled over the bridge. One of them took his feet, one of them took his head, and I took his midsection. And we just picked him up and threw him over, end quote. Roy Ogden ran along the canal yelling for Charlie to swim. Remember, it was a canal, not a stream. It had straight, smooth cement walls that went down like 20 feet. There were no banks for Charlie to climb. The canal is split in two at that bridge, and I read in one of the articles at the time that one side would have been two feet deep and the other five feet deep. I can't remember which side, and it really doesn't matter because I don't know which side they threw Charlie in anyway. Even if Charlie had been able to swim or stand up in the water, he was unable to because he was suffering from a severe asthma attack. On his death certificate, it's listed as a contributing factor in his death by drowning. 
According to the police affidavit, well, while first responders looked for Charlie, the boys were bragging to friends at a party that they had, quote, jumped the fag and kicked the shit out of him, then threw him into the stream. Sean said, we never considered that he might not get out of there. We never gave it any consideration he might drown. We drove away laughing to us this was just another day, another incident that would go unreported and life would go on. Mm. Sean was sleeping in a camper behind his parents' home Sunday morning when Daniel Ness came up and woke him up. Daniel told him the guy they'd beaten up and thrown in the canal had died. Sean told the Bangor Daily News, It was the weirdest feeling I've ever had. I didn't know what we were going to do. The boys decided to run away. They went around getting money from friends. They tried to borrow a car but were not successful. Then Daniel Ness decided he was going to stay in town one more night to see his girlfriend. Jim Baines and Sean packed some stuff up and went down to the railroad yard and jumped onto an empty boxcar. Losers. But the train only went three miles and then <laughs> backed up. They found out it wouldn't be leaving anytime soon so they decided to camp out near the interstate west of town. While they were walking there they ran into a friend. Sean, a friend stopped us and told us we should get lost because they were cops everywhere. We turned a corner and there they were. When they got to the police station, their friend Daniel Ness was already being questioned. He had turned himself in. The boys were booked and brought to the Hancock County Jail. Sean said it was all a blur. We had no idea what was going on. The seriousness of what we had done had not sunk in and our top priority was getting out of there. The three boys were fingerprinted and mug shots were taken. The sign around each boy's neck had his name and the charge, murder. Sean said, but it wasn't until I saw that sign that I realized what we had done and how serious things really were. After their sentencing, both Sean Mabry and Jim Baines were eventually put into Cottage One at the Maine Youth Center, which housed the most violent boys and sex offenders. Sean told the Bangor Daily News that he estimated about one-third of his cottage mates were gay. The way the Maine Youth Center was used to be set up, I don't know if it still is, it's called Long Creek Correctional Center now. It had a big building in the middle, which used to to have kids in it but it, it was an old building it was probably built the turn of the 20th century and then it had these they called them cottages but they were houses around it and that's where the kids lived right. in these well i didn't like it having to live under the roof with these types of people huh. not realizing that they were probably looking at me saying what kind of guy is this that would do what he did living with homosexuals every day made me realize that they were not different from me except for their sexual preference we began to talk and eventually i defeated that part of me i realized i just didn't know what they were about and that's why I didn't like them, end quote. Oh, well, gee, yeah, good for They him. were just like me. Oh. Yeah. When Sean was released less than two uh, years violent later. Violent psychopaths. I know. <laughs> he fell back into his old routines, skipped school, drank and partied, and eventually dropped out of school. He never finished high school. He moved around the country, getting into trouble, spending time in jail. Unlike his former cohort, Jim Baines, Sean didn't have the urge to preach to others. Quote, I guess I never felt like I should talk to kids about what I did. Although for the last year and a half, I have turned my life around. Before that, I had some trouble and I never felt like I was the one who should be doing much talking much about reform. One and thing quote. I've noticed, though, is Jim Baines had actual real remorse and understanding mm -hmm. of what he did. I haven't heard it with Sean. It's all about himself. Uh, I don't think know. he did. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Even after th when he found out that Charlie had died, it was like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? Not, oh, my God, that we killed somebody. He'd been invited to take part in Charlie's yearly memorial service, but he said no. Quote, the memorial and the parade are a big deal to those who participate, but these people didn't commit the act. 
To them, it's one day of the year that they spend dealing with what happened. I deal with it every day. Ten years later, there's not a day that this does not cross my mind. Some days are worse than others. I can't imagine that ever changing. Guilt was not at the top of my mind when Sean was younger. But ten years later, he said, How could you not feel guilty? Of course I do. Charlie Howard was so young, he was helpless that night, and three reckless kids come along just for the hell of it, toss him over the bridge. Because of our actions, Charlie Howard lost his life. In the same article, the reporter tells how in 1989, Sean was in Daytona Beach when he saw a biker with a shirt that said, Chuckahomo Bridge, Bangor, Maine. Hmm. Somehow the biker found out who Sean was and shook Sean's hand and wanted Sean to sign his t-shirt. Sean says he declined. I figured the only way for the guy to know who Sean was would be for Sean to tell him. Right. So... If he had or, really been ashamed, he wouldn't or have. Or if Sean was with friends who knew. Yeah, that's true. They could have said, hey, your t-shirt's about our friend over there. As for Daniel Ness, he seems to have disappeared. As a juvenile offender, his records are sealed. And it's his legal right to move away and not tell anyone who he was or what happened. And that appears to be what he did because I couldn't find anything about him. And he, every time that there was like an anniversary or where are they now, they never could find him. I'm sure if they really wanted to, they could track him down, but you know. Right. Ten years after the crime, the Bangor Daily News reports that two gay bars had been opened in the city, but both had since closed. And I'm assuming there's probably a gay bar there now. I don't know. Yeah. Jim Martin the local president of Equal Protection, Maine, told the, and this was 10, 10 years after the crime, too, so this was 1994. I think a lot of those have coalesced into Equality, Maine now. It's right. like one big group. Told the BD that he was in high school at the time of Charlie's death, preparing to move to the Bangor area for college. He was frightened of what could happen to him as a gay man, but then he heard the Reverend Strong tell his story about Charlie Howard. Jim Martin told the Bangor Daily News the minister had asked Howard why he couldn't tone things down just a bit. Charlie said, I can't participate in my own oppression. That struck me and something inside of me clicked. I realized that every time I switched pronouns when I talked of someone in my life or went back to work on Monday and made up stories about what I had done during the weekend, I was taking part in the oppression. In 2009, on the 25th anniversary of Charlie's death, the city placed a memorial at the location where he was thrown off the bridge. It's a bowl-shaped planter made out of granite with Charles O. Howard, 19 1961 to 1984 carved on the front it sits on a block of granite carved in the base is we the citizens of bangor continue to change the world around us until hatred becomes peacemaking and ignorance becomes understanding charlie howard an openly gay man died here at the hands of hatred and ignorance on july 7th 1984 on the 26th anniversary of charlie's death lois reed of carmel who was a friend of Charlie's and from the Unitarian Church, threw the first flower into the Kanduskeg stream. It was a white rose and baby's breath and tied with a lavender ribbon. It was from Charlie's mother, Pat Baronsky. Lois said she will never come to Bangor again. She made this request to me 25 years ago. This is from her to Charlie, end quote. As Lois tossed the rose over the bridge, she said, As we leave this place, let us be mindful of what Charlie's mother said in a letter to me after his death. Be careful of the crazies out there and those with closed minds. Before they marched to the bridge, Lois spoke at the memorial service held every year at the Unitarian Church. She called homophobia a malevolent iceberg. Each time we remember Charlie Howard and mourn his death, 
I sensed the iceberg get smaller and smaller. In the spring of 2011, someone vandalized Charlie's memorial, spray-painting anti-gay slurs. It angered residents and spurred people to action. Mickey McDonald, who lived near the small guard memorial, told the Bangor Daily News, At first I couldn't even read what it said. I wasn't sure if it was writing or just some random lines. Then I saw it and said, God, that's pathetic. How ridiculous for someone to do this. Just seeing that was disgusting, but actually having something so offensive like that happen to a memorial made all these people regroup. And I think it's rekindled our intention to encourage tolerance in our community. So in a way, it's a good thing. End quote. The city rededicated the memorial after it was cleaned up with an hour-long ceremony. One of the activists there, Mark Bridges of the Bridge Alliance, told the BDN, I was a 16-year-old when Charlie Howard was killed, and that pushed me so far back in the closet, it wasn't funny. I struggled with alcoholism for years after that. End quote. And every year, even last year in 2020, though socially distanced and masked, the memorial ceremony and March for Charlie go on. And it's always around my birthday. That's because it happened on your birthday. (laughs) What started as a protest at the courthouse continued on the one-year anniversary of his death and every year for the past 36 years and counting. The song people remember Charlie singing was I Am What I Am from LaCasia Foles. The song, written by Jerry Herman, begins, I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world I want to take a little pride in. My world and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say, hey world, I am what I am. Mm. I am what I am. I don't want praise. I don't want pity. I bang my own drum. Some think it's noise. I think it's pretty. And so what if I love each feather and each spangle? Why not try see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout out loud, I am what I am. And while I was writing this, it really made me look back at how things were back then, how different things are now. There's still hate and prejudice, and we still have a ways to go. I know it's a cliche, but Charlie Howard did not die in vain. And that is my story of Charlie Howard. Oh, it's funny, a while back, I can't even remember what, sometime in the last year, I was actually going to do charlie howard and decided not to for whatever reason and i think you did a much better job than i would have oh that's so sweet i remember you know you'd laugh somebody was flamboyant and i'm not proud of that that he had a lot of courage to do that yeah he did and it's so i know and the thing is like with the the kids who did it on one hand no they did not say let's go kill someone no and of course there were stupid teenagers who don't necessarily think about the consequences of their behavior but on the other hand they didn't give a shit no. If they killed someone. And also, what I was going to say about, about Sean Mabry. Okay, so he didn't set out to kill someone, but he had beaten the shit out right. of that. That other guy, that guy was terrified. Right. Can you imagine being on the floor of your car and pressing the I accelerator, know. knowing that you could probably, you, your car, he couldn't could see what was happening. slam into a brick wall or yeah. something, yeah. But he th- thought to it was better away. than dying. And the fact that Sean Mabry apparently thought it was funny yeah. or whatever, and the fact that he knew people wouldn't complain to the police. Yes, But exactly. on the other hand, 
you know that the cops had some idea this kind of shit was going they on. Knew it was, yes, they did. And they didn't give a shit. There were two different places. They hung on Middle Street and there was another park that they hung. I understand that. Where, where else it are happens, they going to go? You know? It happens everywhere. Yeah, and you know what? Teenagers hang around places too. I know. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, people are like, oh yeah, but the gay people are hanging around. Well, and then there's other places in town where the teenagers are hanging around. I know. And there's other places in town where the guys who drive trucks are hanging around. I know. And so it's it's like, what's wrong with the gay people hanging around? People did used to hang around. Everybody used to hang we around. We didn't have anything else to do. Like I said, it doesn't seem like that long ago because no, we're doesn't. old. It doesn't. But when when I look back and when I was reading these articles and stuff, I was like, oh my God, yeah. things were so different. And then to think of it like every year, except for last year, yeah. Hannah and I go to the Pride Parade and it But one of the things is clear and people still think this way. It's the fault of the people who are who are being themselves is somehow it's their fault not the fault just like i was saying with domestic violence and what we were saying last week with sarah everard last episode with sarah everard and everything there still has to be a change in mindset the fault isn't with people (laughs) who are doing nothing wrong and being attacked the fault is with the attackers that's right still all these years later the attention isn't on the attackers it's on well you know you need to be careful you need to do this you need to do that blah 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 Mm -hmm. you know and that's the thing it doesn't matter if you're not breaking the law what you're doing it's the fault of the person whether it's a bunch of idiot teenagers or some cop also some of the letters of the editor were had the good point where you can't only say it was the kids that did it because it was also our attitudes and which you can say the same thing about attacks on women and stuff. Yes. It's our attitudes about that, that form that kind of mindset. So we're all complicit in it right. if we're not trying to change it. But I was going to say about the Pride Parade every June. Portland has a huge parade. And Hannah and I go every year. It's the funnest parade. Well, it's the most joyful parade. Yes. Everyone's so happy. And it, it just makes me happy. But I got kind of annoyed. The last one we went to was 2019. The woman behind me was not from Maine. And she was like, oh, I'm so surprised that they would have this bigger parade in a place like Maine. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. it just shows I mean, that people have this this view of Maine that isn't true. Things have changed, thank they goodness. Have. They have. And I hope and they will. Things change slowly, but then you look and you see that they do change. Not yes. Just not as quickly as people would like them to. So, anyways, do you have an NNW? Do I ever? <laughs> well, first of all, did you ever watch the last episode of... Murder? No, you know what? I didn't finish. I haven't finished it yet because I was in the third episode and it was going so friggin' slowly that I lost interest. Yeah. And I said to myself, I have to finish watching this at some point. But it was, I really honestly think it could have been edited quite a bit more. It was very, I was just getting really bored. Yeah, like The whole did. thing with his sister was boring yes. as hell. That's I, what I meant when, last time when I said about it being self-indulgent. Yeah, not that, that it, it was about, not that it was about him and his stuff, but it indulged in things that were interesting to him, but didn't help move the story. But in... In fairness to him, he's he was like a film student, so you yeah. Know. Well, and then as a film student, he should learn about that. 
But, so anyway, <laughs> but I will get, finish. Let me get I will to, finish okay. watching at some point. Anyway, so I had a really, really busy week at work and stuff. And sometimes you just want to veg out and not. You walk. don't have to make excuses. This is my introduction okay. to my NNW. I'm not making excuses. I'm explaining. <laughs> You'll see. Okay. <laughs> you want to watch something that doesn't involve a lot of intellectual <laughs> activity okay that you kind of know it, which is on me some of this you kind of know what's going to happen and know what you're going to get and it, you know it's just basically one level up from staring at the wall for an hour before you go to bed mm-hmm. and that's how that sometime over the past week or week and a half i watched all 13 episodes of a series on Oxygen slash NBC called A Lie to Die For. Ooh. And it's basically your typical kind of B-level true crime series. You know, they all have their little gimmick. And this is, you know, that somebody lied about something. Lots of wealthy, entitled young men lying to their parents about their financial situation and stuff. And then what else are you going to do? You have to kill the family. Oh, yeah. Well, you know. So why don't we go through the list, which I have in front of me. You'll be happy to know. Good. But anyway, bad reenactments. I'm taking away a point. Mm. Because the reenactments <laughs> are bad. Um, they are bad in many ways. They're bad in the typical way. They have too many of them. They're unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But also they're bad in things like about one guy. Oh, he, you know, it says like, oh, he'd been a, he'd been involved in Little League. And then it shows... Like, just part of a, a the upper torso of a person who's wearing kind of like a soccer ref shirt with a whistle. And it's like, do these people even know what Little League is? <laughs> like, what country is this made of? And then it, it talks about somebody painting their house, and they're dipping a fucking paint roller into a bucket of paint. <laughs> so it's things like that. There's one where it's in Wisconsin... It's in Wisconsin, and the people go to the talk to the police detective. Because it's Wisconsin, Wisconsin is cold. So the police detective is just there in his suit and stuff. This isn't the reenactment. And the people it's showing, they're wearing ski caps and scarves and gloves and stuff, sitting in the office talking to the guy. <laughs> and it's like, I live somewhere that's cold. You take those things off when you go inside. <laughs> Even if you leave your coat on and unzip it. So, yeah, I know. So, and, and they had a lot of, like, focusing on the reenactors, like, eyes and brow hmm. and, and, you know. It makes me want to watch it for some reason. <laughs> yeah, well, I did watch 13 episodes. A lot of these reenactments are happening, well, there's no, like, dialogue in them, but they're happening while somebody's telling the story. And it's like, you don't have to so- show that stuff. Like, when somebody says Little League, you don't have to show somebody in a soccer <laughs> ref's shirt with a whistle. <laughs> Let me tell you something, people who don't know anything about baseball, which Little League is baseball, nobody has a whistle. <laughs> nobody has a whistle. There are no whistles. The umpires don't have whistles. The coaches don't have whistles. Nobody has a fucking whistle. So why are you showing Show a fucking baseball. But anyway, okay, so that's a point for reenactments. Narrative cliches, I'm taking away a point. There is no narrator. And I know that sometimes we give documentaries a pass when the people themselves are speaking the cliché. And it's that person's point of view. But also, as we've also talked about, the people making the show, you know, make editorial choices. 
And these are so laden with cliches, like in the teaser part, you know, before the beginning of the show, some of them, you know, they show different people talking to get you excited about the show. There's a few of them where every single thing somebody says is a cliche, like, (laughs) oh, then the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And that was the, that was the piece of evidence that turned this whole case around. And, and then, you know, I've never seen a case, I've never seen anybody as bad as this person and stuff. So there are all those cliches. As well as the people constantly saying things like, this doesn't happen in this kind of town. Clue to everybody out there who lives in upper white middle class areas. An entitled kid killing his parents because he lied about going to college or something else or wanted money does happen in your town. That's where it fucking happens. I know. You know? There were also a couple of them. It's that type of guy. Oh, he was so ingenious at his whatever he was doing. Just think if he put that energy into getting a job and stuff. Totally missing the fact that psychopaths don't want to get a job. They, this is what they want to do. You know? Maybe I'm a psychopath. Maybe you are. Racial gender obtuseness. I'll, I'll just skip over that. There wasn't any really. There's not a lot of... There wasn't a lot of diversity... But I, if I were not white, I would be grateful for that, given the kind of <laughs> stories these are. Um, <laughs> lack of good visuals, I'm taking away a point. You know, they did have crime scene photos and stuff, and family photos. I feel like they could have gotten more, and it seemed like they almost defaulted to bad reenactments. Like, lots of times with the reenactments, they just have flashes of reenactment stuff, and it's like, you don't need the reenactment, and it's kind of tied to the visuals thing. Like, they're relying on showing the furrowed brow and angry eyes of the reenactor when you just show the same picture of the guy again, you know? So I'm taking that away. Missing pieces, I'm taking away a point, Hmm. mostly because, for one major, there are probably a lot of missing pieces. Some of the stories... I felt didn't totally make sense in some ways. But to me, the biggest missing piece is a lot of the people, you know, it's usually not just one lie that leads to a murder. Do you have a cat with you? (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's not a problem. I I just can't help but hear it's purring. She's purring. It's my She likes my review. But... Most of these, you kind of find out in a roundabout way toward the end and stuff, there are huge red flags about these people. And I understand it's the choice of the people who make the show to do it the way they want and to have this formulaic narrative. But it would be much more benefit to their audience if they had people discussing the red flags that a lot of these people exhibited. So that's the major reason I take away a point. There's also things like just people misspeaking that you don't have to use their quotes. Like somebody saying haphazardous when they mean haphazard. (laughs) Physiotherapist instead of physical therapist. Well, if they're Uh, British, don't they call them physiotherapists? Oh, yeah, okay, that one was in Canada, so okay, Canada, I'll take that yeah. back. And Oh, and on the red flag thing, they did have for a forensic psychologist on some of them, and yet they didn't use the person well and didn't talk about the red flags the way they should have. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, I'm not going to take away any points. Storytelling, taking away half a point. Ooh. First of all, it had one of my least favorite things. The series of talking heads telling the exact uh, same story, which you don't just don't need to have. I don't like that. And mm. also them going back to the 
missing pieces, but I'm spreading it out to this too, that they rely on this formula to tell the story, and by doing that, they don't tell it well, especially as far as looking into red flags. Like this one guy who robbed banks, he was the um, bearded bank robber. <laughs> His, he was a young guy, but he put a disguise on with a beard, and, and it turns out, you know, you find out at the end that there were a lot of issues with him before he did this. And he ended up killing uh, his family later. Be- yeah. Spoiler. Because he went to jail for being the bearded bank robber and then got out. And then was about to get this great job in IT till the boss found out he had been the bearded bank robber and didn't hire him. So the guy pretended he had a job even though he didn't. Uh-oh. And he went to his mother. He was going to get married. He was engaged. And he went to his mother to borrow some money. And she said, you have to tell your fiance Uh-oh. that you're the bearded bank no, robber. No, she knew he was oh. the bearded bank robber. Oh. That you don't have a job, but you're just oh. riding around the subway every day instead of going to work. So he killed... Um, his mom and two of his mm. brothers. There were several people who co- committed familius, familicide to cover up a lie. Oh, um, all men, all white men, young white mm. men. Freshness, I'm not going to take away any points because mm. despite all the other flaws, a couple of these are stories I had heard before, but most of them were not, and yet they were interesting ones. And one of them, I'm even going to do my next oh. story on. I'm like so yeah. intrigued. So, so it is fresh in that way. I'm going to give it a break and not take away any points. It is stale in that, you know, there are so many of these series now. So many I know. of them. And they all rely on the same formula. And it, it's almost yeah. like they're, they're writing it in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Repetition, taking away a point because it has the classic repetition that I hate, where it takes them five minutes to make one point. Like this one woman, her husband was killed. It's another one of those. The son was lying about going to college and oh, graduation day came around. And <laughs> what are you going to do? You have to kill your parents because they want to go to the graduation. And he owed money and he was embezzling money from them, steal money. And it's typical. But she told the police that she had done it on the phone because uh, obviously the guy kid was standing there with a gun oh, but so but then immediately she got in the cruiser and she changed her story but then the the repetition is where they keep saying that well she said she did it and but then she got in the cruiser and said he huh. did it and it's not the thing where you have a bunch of different people telling the same story that annoys me but yet they just keep kind of hammering on this point without moving the f- story forward and then Ugh. they like go to a commercial and come back and then hammer on that same point oh, geez, again I hate that. Yeah, yeah like 48 hours does that a lot and it's just yes. like okay we get it move on let's move on and it's almost like they're just trying to fill space beating the drum there are probably things that beats the drum on, but I have taken away one, two, three, four, five and a half points. Yeah. So yeah. It, so it's getting four and a half points. So I won't yeah. take away anything for beating the drum. So four I, and a half. So it gets four and a half points. You know what you're getting. I did watch thirteen episodes in probably the space of a week and a half. Yeah, well. So it wasn't so awful that I couldn't watch it. But as I said at the beginning, it's the kind of thing where, first of all, I like true crime shows that have like a psychological bent. I'm not interested in drug stuff 
Yeah, I don't... You yeah. know, I'm not interested in serial killers who, mm-hmm. if, for the most part, unless they have some interesting thing... you oh, know, like I'm, mob stuff. Right, yeah. I'm not interested in mob stuff. So these I find interesting on that level. There's worse shows and a giant <laughs> slew of... Of true crime. There's so many now. I know. On Oxygen and Hulu and everything. And it's called A Lie to Die For. It's so kind of lackluster that I kept forgetting what it was called. But, Mm. um... Mm. Oh, and I wanted to mention, like, when you were talking about the size of Bangor, it's funny, I noticed that on a lot of these shows. I can't remember what city it was, but they said, oh, he wanted to live in a smaller city, so he moved here because it's a it's a small city. You know, it's 100,000 people or less. And I always think that that's funny when people say that. I cause, know. Because in Maine, like, Portland's 67,000, and it's the biggest yeah. city. Then Bangor, and then Lewiston is about 30,000. It's right below Bangor. It's always funny what people think of as a small city but um, i know and, and also just for cliche purposes that like there is not one episode that doesn't have at least half a dozen cliches <laughs> varying so anyway but people want to watch it it's on oxygen or mbc or peacock or whatever the app is they all yeah. but in any case it's getting late and uh, yes i know my brain isn't working very well Mine either. I can't believe tomorrow's Monday already. The weekend goes Ugh. by so fast. I, I just, know. I, I just do not want to work. I was hoping again this weekend to win the lottery and didn't, so I could have quit my job. But oh well, you could still quit it, but I could. Probably wouldn't be advisable. No, it wouldn't. It took me a couple years to get out from under the financial burden of having been unemployed for fourteen months. I know, and I'm kind of out. You know, I have to work three jobs because it's just the nature of journalism that every new job you make less money than you did the job before. I know. Because it's a dying, not a dying industry, an evolving industry that does not pay. People who have been doing it for 40 years a lot of money, especially if you're female. Not to get into that. But anyway, at least I have a job. I keep saying. Yes. At least I have a job. For yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Until they listen to this pot. I'm the least interesting person in the world to mm, them. That's good. That's always a good place to be. It is. I, you it, know, it, the less interested your boss is in you, the better. That's true. Anything well, else? No. Has. Hey, you know, and you can donate on Patreon. Oh, yeah. We never say that. We don't plug ourselves the way we, we need yeah, to. Yeah, you can go to Patreon. And, hey, and you can review us and give us stars. Yeah, but throw don't us say two mean bucks a things. month. Uh, okay. Like when people say mean things. <laughs> I was talking about the one that said I can listen to someone read from Wikipedia anytime or something stupid. He like he that. can on plenty of podcasts that are not ours. I don't think we've ever read from Wikipedia no. on our podcast. I always write my own shit. We write our own scripts. Love them or leave them. But anyway. anyways, okay. All right. Okay. Until Good next. night. Thanks for listening. Out my window. There's something weird going on. Just let me hang on. Let me. Okay. I'll be right back. Look at your camera. Don't go. Somebody will hurt you. Okay. It looks like there's someone on the roof of the Sunset Grill with a flashlight. Hmm. Which is weird, but maybe they're, I don't know. I guess it's not on my business. (laughs) Ha ha.